Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. It's the 2nd of February 2022, but you're listening to this episode on the 15th of March same year. Um, with us today is Elena Maris, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Maria. Uh, sorry, Maris. Um, uh, you, uh, Maris' research is concerned with the interaction and tensions between media and tech industries and their users or of audiences. She's particularly interested in the ways uh, they use technology to understand and influence one another. And she also studies how people experience and leverage their identities through their experiences with popular culture, technology, and the internet. Um, why is she with us today or why we are talking to her? Well, um, Elena Maris recently published an op-ed in, in The Wired titled The, Humanity, the Humanities Can't Save Big Tech From Itself. And um, if I can just recap it briefly, Um, Elena, you, you touch on, on the developing trends of including humanities experts into the big tech development and war against solutionism in this field. So my first question to you would be, uh, after we finally train the, the big tech industry to include hum humanities in, in the debate, you're saying this won't change much. Uh, why, why do you think so? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been watching, um, for the last few years, I've been watching sort of trends in bringing in various types of uh, workers into the tech industry with the aim of ameliorating or um, at least addressing some of the recent sort of social and cultural outcomes of various technologies, um, social media platforms, things like that. And it, I want to stress that it's not necessarily a new um, thing to try to bring in these kinds of um, experts to work on things like this in tech and in other industries. But there has certainly been in the last few years, especially in the new sort of moment of tech ethics, um, and specifically AI ethics, that there is this new examination of how might we incorporate these types of expertise. Um, what that's resulted in is, you know, human I sort of use humanities as a very large umbrella term um, to mean, you know, people from the humanities, and if we think about um, various um, sub-disciplines there, a lot of academics from the social sciences, um, for example, people like uh, me, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the communication discipline, Um, people who work in sort of the social and cultural um, considerations around technologies, sociologists, anthropologists. Um, and I also discuss in the article other types of workers that have been proposed um, as potential um, experts on, on issues, uh, usually like certain in certain domains. So around misinformation and disinformation, a lot of people have propped up the idea that library workers, librarians might mm -hmm. be the answer. Um, hmm. For various inequalities, people have said perhaps social workers are the answer. And so we've seen various experiments um, at sort of marrying technical solutions and um, more domain um, expertise, sociocultural expertise. And that's sort of what I've been tracking thus far. Hmm. Um, 
yeah. before we before we jump uh, into your your article, I I want to take a historical look on the let's say the interactions between humanities. As you said, it's a it's a it's a big umbrella that covers almost everything, and and technology. So let's say. 10, 14 years ago, after the first, let's say, Apple App Store launched, um, we were told that, you know, there's an app for that, you know, humanities have no business, literally, in, in focusing on, on the tech development. 14 years later, we are now trying to solve the, the tech from, from itself. So what happened in between? Why are we now faced with this uh, with this? tech challenge that that basically puts all of the eggs in in the basket of of humanities yeah and i i want to stress i don't i don't know if anyone's proposing to put all the bad the eggs in that basket um i certainly hope not but um <laughs> yeah i mean if we think historically you know it's funny, I, I spent some time, I, I did a couple of years um, of postdoctoral research at Microsoft. And um, while I was there, I spent some time in their archives. And I remember finding an early email um, from people at Microsoft, sort of technical people saying, hey, how come Apple is you know, beating us so much? And, it's, and, and someone saying, because people like the way it looks, the way it, um, the, the ease of use. And so these emails I found were the, the first attempts at realizing like, we need to hire some designers some people who think about how people use technologies, not just think about the technical aspects. And so there have always be, been these moments of realization, I think of the limitations of technical expertise and the reminder often in various technological pursuits that the human doesn't work like a machine. and um, various attempts to deal with that. I think increasingly though, um, you know, AI has been the answer for a lot of technologists. We'll just answer the human by collecting huge amounts of data and um, it'll give us some kind of human insight. And uh, the more recent in the last few years, answer to that though has been, or a sort of realization I think has been that, well, that didn't quite work out the way we planned. Um, and so maybe that's why I think in the last few years, we've seen this move toward, okay, well, let's have a board, you know, an advisory board on this particular social issue that's related to our product, or let's hire some consultants, or um, even maybe let's hire some people as regular, um, you know, regular employees at our company who aren't what we originally expected or thought we might have to hire. But I, I absolutely think it is related to this question of things look bad PR wise. Um, more and more people are calling for regulation. And certainly this is uh, one of the many various attempts at quote unquote self-regulation. Um, I think that tech companies are engaged in currently. What can we do to, um, to work on these issues at least, <laughs> at least um, like in a visible way to the public? Um, that doesn't require um, more formal regulation. Absolutely, I can see how that's a piece of that puzzle as well. Mm. Because you you also mentioned in in your article the the shift from you know humanities being ignored and um, to to towards humanities and academics from from uh, humanities studies 
being brought to the to the tech table and then being ignored and then being you know uh, over overruled by by other techies uh, that are sitting uh, in front of the same table. So what would you say was was the reason for for the invitation itself? Um, is it to appear more <laughs> humane or is it something else? Yeah, I think there are a few reasons. So you know, somebody who studies workers and in industries, I study people who work in the media and the tech industry, I try to remember that there's often a difference between structural realities and sort of macro issues and then individual workers too. So I wanna point out that while the larger project of inviting these people to the table for a Facebook, like Facebook writ large, is probably to do with, um, you know, public facing issues, um, perhaps self-regulation efforts, uh, perhaps an idea that certain having these people in their wheelhouse might give a PR sheen to particular policy decisions, whatever those things might be. I think there are other reasons as well. And I think um, a lot of tech workers are increasingly concerned with the social and cultural implications of their products. And I, I think that really very real concern and you, you see more uh, movements within sort of the industry of tech workers pushing their managers and their, and their larger corporate bosses to, um, to do something right about all of these things that are going wrong very publicly. And so, you know, a lot of that, I think momentum has also led to this, that very real um, realization by a lot of technologists that there are limits to quantitative knowledge, to technical expertise. And I've seen a real desire to disrupt kind of what feels like this, this train that sort of like just won't stop running. And it's funny, I, I recently was, I've been working on this study of tech workers and a sort of one of our unintended results that we heard a lot, it was that um, the sort of flow of the, of the culture and tech of how you put products out doesn't allow for slowing down and asking questions, particularly if you don't have quantitative data to explain why. And so I, I think that there's interest in, and curiosity around ways to disrupt that and to augment technical know-how with this type of expertise. But we're talking about um, very different types of expertise, very different types of workflows. And so I think that turn that I'm noticing of asking people to the table and then sort of um, pushing them back away is, is that clash of, of norms and values and um, even of ways of understanding the problems themselves. And so that's what I'm seeing more and more. Hmm. But, but do you think that that gesture of inviting and then pushing away tells you something about how these people or the, the tech industry, how the tech industry understands these issues or is how honest they are about, about, uh, about solving or resolving them. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, it's this language issue is, is a big issue as well. So one thing I've been doing is watching a lot of the listings, the job listings for various companies, particularly with keywords like ethics, um, social culture, things like this that have to do with these sort of soft concepts, right, of, um, of society, of data. And, uh, you know, 
the very language around, for example, fairness is so different um, if you think about it in a technical capacity. So if you think about people who work on AI fairness with technical skills, there tends to be this um, agreement, let's say if they're thinking about facial recognition, that mm -hmm. fairness would be some sort of quantitative measure, some of a model that a model could meet of accuracy, quantitative accuracy. So maybe 98% accurate. Um, and maybe if they're thinking about the disparities in facial recognition for um, black faces versus like white faces, maybe um, their idea of fairness might be if we just, the model hits 98% accuracy, how we define accuracy, um, then that's fair. Versus if you bring in maybe an anthropologist or a sociologist who specializes in um, like the racial politics of carceral systems, then they might say uh, collecting people's faces for the state to use in an already racially unjust carceral system, the whole project itself is not fair. There's no percentage mm. that would get you there. But of mm. course, bringing someone to the table who says that, um, if your whole company is centered around facial recognition, there is clearly some kind of, you know, if that's the profit motive, mm. um, where, does that, where does that end you up, right? Where, where do you end up at? And so I think that a lot of people have have sort of come up against that and then of course an industry might um, fall back on what's comfortable and what's um, easy to understand for them which is like a mathematical notion of fairness mm -hmm. and so I think that might be potential and that's also why mostly where I see full-time worker you know I don't see full-time workers in fairness often being hired from these back these like sort of humanities social science backgrounds much more often people with those kinds of expertise, well, they're hired in like policy teams, but mm -hmm. often not in product teams or, um, and not that much in research even often, um, but they're brought in as consultants, as advisors, they're on boards. Um, and so that, that does demonstrate to me an understanding by the industry at large of it being more of a PR issue um, mm -hmm. than maybe something that can really get into the guts of, what makes the industry move and change a culture on a on a wider scale? Mm. I can think of a few things that that happened in the past few years that would warrant, let's say, an improved PR strategy. But but I wanna I wanna hear yours your examples or your ideas of what happened in the last two to three years that this um, you know ethics and um, self regulatory model. Um, picked up steam and picked up public recognition that this is something that that uh, we need to to discuss and and to resolve ultimately oh gosh uh <laughs> i could i could rattle off quite a few things that you know I, I think your listeners would be familiar with i mean um a couple of the issues that my work tends to come back to i think are but you know, here in, I'm in a U.S. context doing my research, and but this is certainly something that's um, been an issue with platforms across the globe, which is mis and disinformation. Um, mm. That's something that has real questions for democracy, um, in you know, in the COVID era for health, um, and so and equality, all kinds of things. And so, I, you know, that's one issue that a lot of people and the public are concerned about. They have a lot of opinions about, um, and it's something that's very difficult. You know, um, governance is difficult and the industry has struggled, especially public platforms have struggled with this. So it's, 
it's an area where a lot of proposals are being thrown out there. It's where, you know, the case study that I you know, discuss in the op-ed is about librarians because here is a community who has some experience with these longer term sort of free speech, access to information issues. And so they're sort of propped up as a potential, um, a potential fix outside of technical fixes, right? Mm. Um, another issue that I continue to come back to is sort of AI and um, various forms of like policing um, and especially in the US racial context, the mm. issues around AI and policing, um, whether it's in courtrooms and um, sort of risk assessments um, or as I discussed in the article, sort of social work and trying to alleviate um, violence in inner cities and things like that. There have been a number of technical solutions proposed and then a number of people in, coming from the humanities and social sciences saying, wait a minute, these don't have technical solutions and might actually um, you know, be very harmful and various ways of trying to address that um, mm. through these different professions. Mm. Because hmm. one of the things that, that changed, at least from my from my perspective as a as a let's say as a journalist covering these issues for the last I'm going to say ten years, was this I call it the coolness factor of of uh, big tech, right? So before let's say before COVID, before the whole Facebook, before U.S. election um, debacle with with these big platforms, politicians. Um, saw um, Silicon Valley and um, uh, uh, companies related to Silicon Valley as this as this cool factor that that brings in votes you know uh, uh, we had ministers from from Slovenia literally taking a pictures taking their pictures next to let's say Facebook and LinkedIn uh, billboards saying you know yes we get tech we're we're hip and and now uh, it it almost seems that if you're if you're for tech if you're you know saying that Facebook and other big tech companies are are the cool guys uh, it, it almost seems yeah, like you don't know what's what's happening. Um, so what what happened in the last few years? Do you get the feeling that that in the U.S. the the tide is also changing? That the politicians and the regulators are are seeing the issues with these companies and are you know turning? I'm not going to say against them, but let's say against them. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, I think all of these issues, um, you know, we had the elections and various um, forms of interference, you know, we've got Cambridge Analytica, we have all of these things that have pushed the public to interrogate. And really, um, in our very like, bipartisan current, <laughs> or sort of both sides are upset for maybe different reasons, but you've mm -hmm. got pressure coming from both sides um, mm -hmm. to do something right and a lot of disagreement about where the problem stems, but that there is a problem. So I agree that the coolness factor of social media, but you know, that, that changes a lot too. You know, Facebook is huge and it, it's not cool anymore, but we have TikTok and there's a lot of lack of um, understanding of various issues with TikTok currently and as sort of a catching up. Um, but so there'll always be a next hot new product, but tech writ large, I think is struggling, but there are new moments all the time to sort of evade, I think, um, if you have this sort of techno utopian mindset to mm -hmm. evade the problems of current tech and 
and hope that the next thing, whether it's crypto or um, NFTs, like the next thing will be the thing that democratizes um, the world through technology without maybe slowing down to consider what went wrong last time. And, and that's why I think a lot of people who study what goes wrong, you know, um, historically have both lobbed these critiques and then suggested themselves or their fields as ways for technology industries to contextualize what they're doing and to slow down and consider, um, well, if, we can think about NFTs, we can think about things that happened before that might inform us about how better to think about these things. And so, yeah, but I, I mean, I absolutely agree. There's a growing, there's a growing um, push toward lobbying. There's all like, there's also, there's also these companies have so much power now they've become conglomerates in many ways. And so despite there being a lot of public pressure, um, you know, regulation is slow to come. And so, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure it's, <laughs> it, I'm not sure about that, but the coolness factor, um, it wears off. And the other thing I might say is that if we think historically, um, you know, I've watched this happen and thought about how it happened at various points with the media industries, there have mm. been various moments like, so tech is just an ad, you know, it's an ad advertising industry at the end of the day. And mm. We have moments in like the 90s when there were cool hunters, when the industry, advertising industry turned away from sort of market demographics and said, no, we need people on the ground who understand people and trends. And they started hiring like anthropologists to tell them about subcultures. Um, and so there's often like a pivot toward um, non-technical or non-quantitative thinking in, mm -hmm. um, in history where they've turned to you know, even earlier, if you go back to the 50s, there was that turn towards social research um, and, and sort of the buying up of psychologists and psychiatrists to try to say that there were um, ways to persuade people to buy things. And so there have always been these interactions between industries and sort of um, academic expertise when frustrations uh, become very real with the limits of quantitative knowledge. You can break people up into demographics but people are still uncontrollable and unknowable. Um, and I think that's the industry continues to sort of err on the side of, we can just build something to get to know people without, without having to go talk to them or, and so it's the idea that maybe there are these people who do talk to people who could give us some kind of information. But even when I talk to people who say work in Hollywood, um, who movie studios hire to augment, um, you know, their market research with, cultural knowledge, those people speak so often of being in the room with an executive and then someone who's crunched the numbers and the numbers always winning um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day and really having to come up with quant. Or if you talk to a UX worker, you know, UX mm -hmm. is something I've studied a lot because um, tech's been hiring sociologists and anthropologists for years and years and years doing user experience research. And even UX workers often speak of that sort of um, sociocultural knowledge being um, subordinate in the minds of ex tech executives to quantitative data. So, you know, a big argument I have is if the industry really wants these insights, they have to value them. And there is a real, with that sort of next big thing, next cool thing with tech, there is a, there's a valuing of technology that so far outweighs the way um, the industry tends to think about valuing other forms of knowledge. Hmm. 
Because hmm. another another issue that uh, that uh, comes up in your in your article is the the question of data diversity, right? Uh, so the issue of these big data um, databases or uh, these uh, collections that have some issues uh, in terms of uh, either they're excluding uh, parts of, of, um, of, let's say, society, or they're putting too much emphasis on, on specific, uh, specific groups within the society. I, I often think about them as uh, you're playing a Tetris game and you, you forget to fill out a line. So you have a little hole on line one and a little hole on line three, and you know the, the, the blocks stack up. So again, this is something that is not being, uh, let's say, discussed when debating around um, problems with big tech, right? So everybody sort of skips the, the question of data and focuses on the question of, you also mentioned artificial intelligence or the way this, uh, this data is being used. Do you think the, that we can go, you know, we, we can go back to the beginning and start, you know, questioning not just the, the, the artificial intelligence that uses the the data, the databases, but the databases themselves. Yeah, well, I think we absolutely should. I would hope that that would be the case. Um, the profit model and fast pace of most technology companies and sort of the building up of data for the, the AI we've sort of reached at this point, um, like the interdependence, the, the shared model, the shared data sets, um, mean that, that have been used sort of wildly and without concern for so many years means that to truly do that, I think, <laughs> would take a real commitment beyond anything I've seen for the most part for most of these companies. Um, it would be extremely disruptive to the industry. It would be, it's really necessary. But, and this is again why I say like, um, how would you do that? You, I think the types of expertise that we've been talking about, these types of workers would be really useful in helping an industry think about how to do that responsibly. And, um, but that would be an industry that would have to hear sometimes that <laughs> this, this data set that's proven instrumental needs to be thrown out or, um, you know, and a bunch of other things they may not want to hear. So it, is it likely is another question, but, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it is necessarily, but there would have to be a real commitment. Um, and that that's a commitment that I think these first stabs are showing us insight into the limitations, like a growing insight into the limitations of what has been done before, but less insight about the severity of the problem and um, the momentous steps that would have to be taken to really start solving and backtracking for some of these projects. Mm. You also mentioned in, in this regard, the, the question or the, the issue of soft power, right? So, so for, for our last part of the discussion, uh, here's, a, here's a question for you. Uh, is there a practical way of, of implementing soft power into the tech development so that you know, this implementation uh, actually improves the development. You, you talk about, you know, question or problems of meaningless uh, inclusions and uh, emphasize, you know, trial and error. So I'd like to hear some, some specific in of, of 
how would you how would you go about trialing these uh, these implementations? Yeah, I think that um, I actually am optimistic that there could be a lot of possible, you know, variety of solutions. Um, and it wouldn't be a, you know, this is something, it wouldn't be a one size fit all approach. Um, human expertise isn't something you can automate. Mm. Um, so if there were real considerations and understandings of that, I think that there could be, you know, the tech industry loves to innovate. And I think that there could be a lot of innovative ways of marrying sort of soft um, knowledge, soft expertise, these um, sociocultural considerations with technical expertise. And I think they could be really, really innovative and interesting. Um, the, what I see as barriers to that currently are, um, again, an unwillingness to really invest in these experts and, and um, other forms of data. So again, using, using some you know, professors, <laughs> some philosophers, some sociologists, as um, consultants, as um, non-regular employees, uh, doesn't really give them a foothold and certainly doesn't give them the security to make critiques and push for change in an organization. So mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the things that would have to happen would be, you know, you need to invest widely and figure out how does this fit into the current workflow or what do we have to do with the current workflow um, in our organization, the way we push out product and the way we make policy that could actually, this huge scale, you know, you can't say I'm going to hire one social worker and one librarian and one sociologist and that will <laughs> fix the issue, right? You would have to radically reimagine how the industry works. And mm. uh, that's, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge change. And, and the other thing is that, um, as, I, as I mentioned in the article, these workers have as a whole, as, as, like, as sociology as a whole or as anthropology as a whole, they have insights, they have um, historical knowledge, things that are really useful to the industry, but as individuals um, and as a whole and as a structural whole, they have limitations, right? And so anybody, you know, any single person is not a spokesperson for their field. And so the, there's no um, anthropologist or social worker with all of the answers or who might not go um, wrong ethically, right? And so they need a community inside the industry if they're going to be a meaningful part of it to provide oversight, to have community, to have job security. And one reason that the tech industry, you know, has a lot of power right now um, with these various workers and why we might not trust if they just hire one or two um, when they sign off on decisions is because um, what, you know, what power, what foothold does a worker have, does one consultant have? And um, particularly people coming from these really underfunded um, fields like social work or librarianship who can be paid a huge amount of money comparatively in the industry to maybe sign off on something mm. or, um, or even just to, to be doing their best, but to be sort of, um, you know, outweighed by so many other types of expertise in the room. Um, so you, and, and as a society, this would mean valuing and paying um, these people more, I think, and also like having more room for them and more valuation of them in larger society, for example, like so much of the humanities in the US and um, university system are being 
cut um, from curricula and, and the jobs are being cut and the job market is terrible for academics. And so the, um, you know, the prospect of being really valued in an industry is really attractive to a lot of workers. And that could be a great thing, but um, not if it's at the whim of the technology industries. Like we really mm. would have to think as a society about valuing. And this is part of that, what you mentioned before, the way we think about technology and, um, the, and how we need to increasingly understand um, the value of other forms of knowledge, not just on the scale of a Facebook but on the scale of, um, you know, a society. Mm, mm. Before I let you go, just just one final question in in regards to to this. The way I see it, it's a it's a road, right? We we have to we have to pick a different road that we're currently on. But uh, surprisingly, it seems that that the biggest effect on on changing the the discussion or on focusing on different issues of the big tech regulations are currently still whistleblowers or people from within the industry that you know go out and and bring us some some dirty laundry saying you know this is a problem this is a problem this is a problem we've seen uh, uh, Hagen testifying uh, in in the uh, in the US and also in the uh, in front of the European Commission we've seen dozens of these cases of people stepping up and and uh, saying what what needs to be said do you see them so do you see whistleblowers as let's say part of the the equation of changing the debate or is this just something that uh, that is basically a you know culture of spectacle so we are always facing or we're always faced with with one person bringing us something shocking and then we debate it forget it and and we go around the same the same corner once again yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think um, certainly whistleblowers uh, have a lot to do with the conversation um, and the terms for discussion and our understanding of what happens in the in, in a very sort of tight-lipped industry that um, pays well and um, has very tight NDAs. So that's really important. Um, it's really important to have that role, but. Uh, it can't be everything, right? And there are real limitations. And I think part of what I, I keep coming back to with this work is no individual has the answer. No individual can see around all of this. And so to pin our hopes on one whistleblower's concerns or the things they, they um, found, you know, it doesn't account for whatever they didn't find because of the limitations of, you know, who they are or what they see or what they might identify as a problem. So what I think what it, these whistleblowers do give us a window into um, are the difficulties, you know, while Facebook and other companies might be hiring more people or might be um, discussing, you know, their efforts or their concerns about their products, a whistleblower shows us what happens when someone internally brings a problem up, right? And it shows us the limitations and the unwillingness to deal with things that currently exist. So um, mm. while, while we might be hearing wonderful things about their concerns, we see someone like um, Timnit, you know, uh, or other people who were these cultural flashpoints of us seeing, well, when someone actually says something in this company or um, tries to highlight an issue, they're pushed out, then we know. And, and that's, you know, when I talk about Timnit Gembri, like we're talking about someone who had technical expertise, mm, mm. Um, someone who's got this 
great background, like exactly what the tech industry, you know, would value um, with technical skills and know-how and things like that. So if someone like that is bringing up issues internally um, and who, you know, the research wings tend to have a lot of respect in tech and things like that, um, then, if, you know, throwing some anthropologist or librarian in the mix and having them say something similar probably doesn't bode well for them. And so I think the whistleblowers give us a window into what the industry um, actually does versus what they say. And that lets us know really the reality of where they're at and what they truly value. And I think that's, that's certainly useful um, and sometimes very concerning and <laughs> um, hmm. upsetting, but it, hmm. it's useful to know. And, and finally, before we before we go, we have uh, we have a habit of these long <laughs> goodbyes on our podcast. Uh, looking looking forward, looking to to this year to to the next year, what would be for you a, a concrete signal that things are turning around or that we're finally ready to to walk on on a different path than uh, the path we've. Uh, we are we are currently on in regards to you know regulatory models, self-regulation, um, the thing, the, the cooperation between tech and <laughs> humanities or or humans, uh, that that you would be finally finally that you would be convinced or persuaded that this time there or we are going to do something different, something that will you know put us on the right track. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't care. I don't think much of self-regulation. So, um, anytime there's actual movement at regulation, um, I'm more impressed. I'm more excited. Uh, you know, there's been some movement, um, against facial recognition here in the U S that I've been impressed by. There has been some movement, um, for gig worker rights. Uh, and these are the things that give me hope. Um, I think the other thing I mentioned earlier, which is that more and more workers in tech are, are noticing these things and caring a lot about the outcomes of the products they make. Um, that, that means a lot to me. And I think that that internal pressure, um, for the tech industry, their people are, and the expertise, the technical expertise of their workers is one of their biggest, um, you know, it's, 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 it's core, it's everything to them. And so I think the more that the workers themselves have, have come to these realizations and pushed back, I think I have hope in that. Um, and um, I see a lot of like young computer science majors who are really enthused and optimistic about um, things like design justice and other um, ways of thinking about technology that more carefully, hopefully consider the human those things make me more optimistic. Um, but um, as a, as a, you know, on a structural level, like big tech, you know, if you want to call it big tech and simplify it, concerns me. And and so I think outside regulation, um, you know, societal inquiry into what is happening in these companies, and then workers using remembering their value and um, and and using their their power. Um, those are the things that that give me hope. Mm. Okay, uh, we'll we'll end the, the discussion right here. Uh, thank you, Elena, for for joining us today on 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 podcast Citizen D. Uh, thank you, dear listener, for uh, listening, and uh, we'll see or talk to you next time. Take care. Thanks so much. <laughs>